0: The name might not be as familiar as Trump when it comes to development in New York City, especially these days. But Zeckendorf is a moniker that has played a pivotal role in shaping the city's skyline. First, there was the larger-than-life William Zeckendorf Sr., who, among other things, assembled the land on which the United Nations rose in the late 1940s. Then there was his much more understated son, William Zeckendorf Jr., who built several projects, including Worldwide Plaza in Manhattan. His sons have since carried on the family tradition. Hi, I'm George Borarchi, and this is Cityscape. Late in his life, William Zeckendorf Jr. penned a memoir, but he died in 2014 before it was published. That's where his wife Nancy comes in. She made it her mission to see her husband's story told. Nancy has quite the story of her own. She's a former principal dancer for the Metropolitan Opera Ballet. These days, Nancy spends most of her time in Santa Fe, where she and Bill retired but she still has a home in New York City. and I recently caught up with her there for a chat. Nancy Zeckendorf, it is an absolute pleasure to be talking with you.
1: That's great to be here. Thank you.
0: So what does it mean to be a Zeckendorf?
1: Well, <laughs> that's a wonderful question. It was a fabulous life to be married to my husband and to watch all the things that he did. But more than that, just to be... Well, I mean, the Zeckendorf goes, goes back even further because we had, uh, his family came to Santa Fe in 1853, so, which we didn't know when we first went out there to do some projects. And so that was very exciting to find out that his great-great-grandfather and two great-great-uncles had settled there from Germany. So the history is um, in the southwest as well as in New York. But I'm very proud of what Bill did in New York, and I am so happy that he finally got this book written because he resisted for a long time.
0: Your husband said that he was a man of few words, right?
1: Very much so, and that's why it is so amazing. He really wrote the book, uh, and um, people who knew him well, I mean, who knew him particularly in Santa Fe, because he never talked about anything he ever did in New York, and they were just absolutely amazed to read this book. And the other thing that has pleased me so much, everybody who reads the book says, my God, it's such a wonderful read, I couldn't put it down. Even people who are not interested particularly in development. And then many people said it gave them a chance to really get to know Bill, since he was a man of few words otherwise. (laughs)
0: He wrote the book, but unfortunately he died before it was published. You, though, Nancy, yeah, he finished it, but you, though, saw it to completion with publishing.
1: Yes, I did. Well, I'm a person that takes a project on it. I'm very single-minded about it. So all my life it's been American Ballet Theater or the Santa Fe Opera or whatever, the Lentzic Performing Arts Center. I'm always focused sort of on one major thing. I admire people that can do five boards at a time and whatever, but it, becomes, it comes from being a dancer, I think. You have to be very focused. <laughs> so um, no, I, I, I helped, and I was very fortunate because through a good friend, Victoria Newhouse, she introduced me to her publisher, publisher uh, Andrea Monfried, and who did, I think, just a beautiful job. I love the way the book is designed.
0: When did you first meet Bill?
1: Well, I met his mother. His mother uh, was married to a music critic, second marriage, and they came. To, I was dancing in the Santa Fe Opera, and Igor Stravinsky was conducting there. Uh, his operas were being done. So, of course, Irving Culloden, Mrs. Culloden's husband, uh, came out to review the Santa Fe Opera, and I was having lunch with them at a resort there, Bishop's Lodge, and when I got back to New York, she called me up and she said, um, "Would you like to go to the ballet with my son?" Well, I didn't know who her son was, Mr. Culloden. I didn't know. <laughs> Even if I knew he was Mr. Zeckendorf, I still, you know, I, I wouldn't have it wouldn't have dawned on me who that really was. So she put us together to go to the ballet. And uh, at the first intermission, he called somebody and I called somebody that I was babysitting, and they both thought, this is a disaster. (laughs) They're not going to last through the evening. But she picked me out for him, and a year later we got married. It took him a while to make up his mind.
0: Was that a character trait for him? Did it take him a while to make up his mind?
1: Well, he he was separated. He wasn't divorced, and he just just felt, he said, well, I just can't tell you right now. And I said, well, I don't want to get married right now. You can tell me we can do it in a year or two. But he said, I can't commit. So I said, okay, I'm out of here. So I made him suffer for a few months. What
0: made you say yes?
1: (laughs) I thought he he needed me. Isn't that like all women? I mean, he did. Um, My husband was very... um, Was had a lot of depression in his life and a lot of insecurity, even though what he did was amazing. And I guess, like all women, they think um, they're going to help somebody. And I mean, I didn't think I was going to change him, but I thought I could help him, and I did.
0: (laughs) How would you say you helped him most?
1: Well, um, but one thing, sticking through it all because there are always tough times. We were married over fifty years. I don't think anyone would have given it great odds, but, but we were. And I was very, I mean, I came as a dancer. I always lived in great space, worked in space, particularly to Metropolitan Opera. There was this marvelous dance studio. So space and architecture always meant a lot to me, funnily enough. And so we shared that interest. And by the time that he did his first project in Santa Fe, which before he did anything here... He asked me to go out and help with the design of the project, and then I ended up being the general, man- general manager or the project manager doing marketing, the landscaping, whatever, and he always just trusted me. He said, you can build anything up to two stories, and I build any- anything higher than that. But he never interfered. I like to build houses, so I built a three or four different houses in
0: You also did some interior design, right, specifically at the Delmonico Hotel.
1: But not really interior design. I'm a person that likes to make something work, and when Bill bought the hotel, they took all this very nice furniture and paintings and stuff to this ballroom where they were going to have a big sale. And I went down to the ballroom, and I went back. I said, Bill, this is amazing. We can make rental apartments here. We can furnish them. So I moved all the furniture back upstairs. And I, I wasn't, it wasn't an interior decorator. I would find a sofa and two chairs and went with it. And uh, we didn't have much money then, even during the project. So I had the, the housekeeper for us in the country shorten the curtains and made them fit. And I got some carpeting. So it was a put-together. It was a make-do. And I did 28 uh, furnished apartments. But I don't consider myself an interior decorator.
0: Where are you from originally?
1: I'm from a little town in Pennsylvania. It's an Indian name. It's called Tidyute. T I D I O U T E. And when I used to tell people where I was from, they would say, Well, don't blush when you say it. It's a funny name. But I, it's a thousand people. Um, wow,
0: only a thousand people.
1: Yeah, it's even less now.
0: So, as you said, you wouldn't have been familiar with the Zeckendorf name because no. your husband had a very famous dad here in New York City, yes. Bill Zeckendorf Sr. Yes.
1: At one time, he had more projects on the map than anybody in in the world. Probably, he was doing things in L.A., um, Montreal, Washington D.C., Philadelphia, New York. He was a big time dreamer, creator.
0: He was the one who acquired the land where the UN is located.
1: That's right, he did, and he sold it. There was a bunch of where uh, like slaughterhouses, believe it or not. And he sold it to the Rockefellers for $8.5 because he felt the U.N. should be there. He heard they were going to move the U.N. to Philadelphia at one time and then also San Francisco. And he said, no, it should be in New York. So he was able to sell them the land.
0: Was it expected that your husband would follow in his father's footsteps and become a developer?
1: I think it was in his blood, although for a while when he was younger, he thought maybe he would be a Broadway producer. Uh, We would have had something in common there, too, probably. But, uh, no, it was just sort of a given. And he worked with his father until his father went bankrupt in 1965. Then he started his own company. But for a long time, New York was going into the 1970s where it was tough, it was crime, it was dirty, blah, blah, blah. So for a while, before he got to build anything, which was in the early 80s, he was rehabbing hotels, like the Mayfair House and the Delmonico and the Navarro and eight different hotels here.
0: (laughs) The Columbia was his first ground-up development.
1: Yes, 96th Street and Broadway, and at the time that he built that, there had been nothing built on Broadway in the way of an apartment house for years and that really opened up the Broadway corridor once he did that. And, of course, the area at the time wasn't exactly desirable, to say the least. And Bill liked to go to a place where he could make a difference and change the neighborhood, and he certainly did there. So from the time he did that all the way down Broadway, started a whole series of apartment buildings, and some of which he did and many others, too.
0: He also did that at Union Square with Zeckendorf Towers.
1: Yes, And I love to tell the story, you know, Bill, speaking of other developers, would have never put his name on anything. He wouldn't even wear cufflinks with his initials on, but he named that building for his father. It just so happens it's the same name he has, but he would never have named anything after himself.
0: So let me ask the question, how much comparison is there between developers, Trump and Zeckendorf then?
1: Well, then... I don't know. I mean, Bill was at one point, they said Bill had more projects on the board in New York City than any other developer. And I think Trump was still younger at the time. People would often ask Bill about um, Trump and he would never said anything unkind about him because he never really had any much interaction with him, but he never had anything but nice things to say.
0: But he had something in common, of course, because both had dads who were in developing right. and they followed in the footsteps. But
1: they came very differently. I mean, for one thing, he said, buildings are like art, and there's something not like paintings and sculpture. They're something you walk by every day, and you have a responsibility, or you should want to, to make something that's beautiful and that changes. And the other thing Bill did when he would go to an area like 8th Avenue, Worldwide Plaza, he would clean up the neighborhood. I mean, there were SROs around, and what he would do was rehab them, bring the people back in, fix up the subway station. I mean, that was sometimes part of the project, but he always bend over backwards. He put a theater into, Worldwide, into Zeckendorf Towers. He didn't have to. He thought it was a nice thing to do for the community. That, that's where there's a big difference, I think.
0: Your husband says in the book that Worldwide Plaza was his biggest and most complicated project. Why was it so complicated?
1: Well, part of it was that certain people that went into it then, had, like N.W. Air had big space. Then they went bankrupt. It's almost complex. There were, I think, 15 banks involved with that and partners and whatever. I mean, in the end, it was very complicated because then, you know— we have debts left over, and partners are having debts and whatever. But as far, he had no assemblage to do. The building was there. But one of the stories I love to tell about it, he was able to get a very prestigious law firm, Cravath Swain, whatever it's called, Swanky Inn, and he was showing them around the, the uh, neighborhood, so to speak, and they came upon the Adonis Theater. And Bill said, well, not to worry. That'll be gone in no time flat. Well, it turns out, as Bill said, it was owned by a Jewish grandmother named Chili Wilson, and she was a very tough negotiator. <laughs> so it took a couple of years to get rid of the Adonis Theatre. It was a funny area then, but, but really, the, it, having an empty lot to start, with four city lots, to build on, was a lot easier than buying up all the pieces, which he had to do when he did the park, uh, the uh, Crown Plaza.
0: To those not familiar with the Adonis Theater, I assume it was an adult theater. It was a a porno
1: theater. They were all over the place. I mean, and that's just before 42nd Street. The city decided to clean up 42nd Street. It was really pretty much of a mess. And even when he built the Crown Plaza on 48th Street and Broadway, the stuff came all the way up. There was something called the Pussycat Theater, which was called the Paragon of Porn. And he had to get that and a lot of other... Funny places.
0: <laughs> so as you say, your husband was not afraid to go into marginalized neighborhoods, and he loved no. to turn those neighborhoods around. So would you say that Bill Zeckendorf was a risk taker?
1: Oh yes, you have to be a risk taker if you're a developer. And that's part of the excitement. I mean the real excitement's making the deal. And that's what he loved doing. I mean that, that's like you know, it's like heroin or something. You make a deal, you want to make another deal, it gives you a real high. It's like gambling. But you have to be a risk taker to be in that business because you never know. You start a project three years later, the world's changed and the economy's gone flat and you don't know there you have an apartment houses to sell and people without means to buy them. So you never know when you start a project because it's two or three, sometimes four years, where the end is going to be. You just don't know. So you have to be a risk taker.
0: What was his philosophy? It wasn't to buy and hold. It was to buy and sell, right?
1: He... It was to buy and sell, not to buy and hold. There's a there's a limerick in the first part of the book that Phyllis uh, Wagner and I wrote as part of a thing for Bill's birthday. It was, this is a book about a great gent, who deals in mortar and wet cement. This we'd like to make clear: in his 60th year, he builds to sell and not to rent.
0: I guess that sums it up, huh, Nancy?
1: (laughs) Yes, that sums it up.
0: He says in the book that being the son of someone famous, his dad, Bill Zeckendorf Sr., was both a blessing and a curse. What did he mean by that?
1: Well, uh, it was inspirational. His father was someone bigger than life. He adored his father. His father adored Bill. But it was also very uh, difficult because Bill's father took more risks than one might normally take. And, you know, went belly up a few times, and Bill was always trying to pull him out and make him see reason at that point. Um, But his father was certainly an inspiration, but they were totally different people because as much as Bill's father was a big personality and loved life and loved women, loved food, whatever, loved dogs, Bill was a very quiet person, very laid back, very, uh, um, well, what's the word I can think about it? Just very unassuming and, and I have told this story he really always thought he was a failure and people like you're looking at me now say how, how could that be but he really did and he really said it and you can't say to somebody no you know you're not a failure look what you did but so when we started to write the book we wrote down 18 buildings in New York three hotels that he had built Eight hotels that he had rehabbed and sold. Ronald Reagan building in Washington, D.C. And he looked at all that, and he never said he was a failure again. It was putting it all together and seeing it and realizing what he had done. Why do you think he felt like he was a failure? Well, that was part of his personality. I, you know, he just he never boasted about himself. He never thought big about himself. He just did what he had to do, but he was a very self-effacing person.
0: Did he feel like he was living in his father's shadow because his father was such a big personality?
1: Well, probably partly, but the thing is, when he was doing all those buildings in the 50s, my God, I mean, there were four or five things on the market all the time, and you would think even then he would have felt more positive about himself. And maybe it was after he finished and moved to Santa Fe and the market was over and his, his real estate life was over, that he really began thinking of himself as a failure. But I would say through all his life, he never thought highly of himself. You know? Just a very humble person.
0: The recession in the early 90s, obviously, did it. gave him a big hit.
1: Yeah. I mean, and he never really came back from that. He was able to keep the... the um, the land that he had put together for 515 park avenue which his sons then developed very well very nicely but um he uh that he was able to hold it together and that was another very difficult thing so that he has still had the process the property which was another assemblage of many pieces around there so he could give that to his kids but um It was over for him. There was no way to start. I mean, we went to Santa Fe. We had masses of debts, and uh, that's what happens in real estate.
0: (laughs) But in Santa Fe, you found a new life, and you built there.
1: Yes, and we had a wonderful project. It was a land project, not a housing project. It was called Sierra del Norte, and it was from the sale of those parcels of land, we were able to get out of our debt and have enough to live on. But it was kind of uh, harrowing for a while. But we built, um, earlier on, he built Los Miradores. Then we had a Sierra del Norte. We built a hotel called the El Dorado Hotel. And then what Bill really did, and he was the person behind this, was the Lensig Performing Arts Center, which we took an old movie theater and rehabbed it. And he was determined to make this work. And he went to the people who owned it and was able to talk them into giving us first a 75-year lease, and then later on we bought it. It's a very, very successful part of the community.
0: You're a former dancer. The art's yeah. very important to you, yeah. very important to your husband.
1: Yes. He loved, um, he loved music and wine and horseback riding, which he couldn't do in his later life. But he was a great collector of music. And everywhere we went, we had to take his big speakers and the subwoofers, and it drove me crazy, but... He really loved his music.
0: Classical in particular? Classical.
1: Beethoven and Mahler. Yes. Yeah. No, he was... And I was very lucky because we'd go to the opera, we'd go to the ballet, and it was never that I was dragging my husband. He really enjoyed it very much. And you
0: mentioned he also loved wine. He was quite the connoisseur. Yes.
1: Burgundy wine, in particular. He was the head of the Tastaban here in New York, and later on, the head of the foundation of the Tastaban, so he created a um, laureate project to send two students from UC Davis every summer to France for six months to learn French winemaking, not to make French wines, as he's quick to say, but to learn what they could to come back to this country and make better wines here.
0: What project here in New York City was he proudest of?
1: Probably Zeckendorf Towers, I think, because how much it changed, and it's a very handsome project, and, um, and I think it made a difference. And I think that was his favorite project here, I would say.
0: What would you say is the greatest lesson Bill left you with?
1: Oh, my goodness, the greatest lesson. Well, he was always a very kind person and never judged people right off the bat, which sometimes I'm inclined to do. He was a very forgiving person. And it didn't matter what someone did to him. He always found a way to work through it. He, and he never gave up. I'm not that much as he, but when he was after a deal or to make something work or to make something happen, even like getting the simulcast for us at our theater in Santa Fe, he just kept at it, kept at it. I saw his father do that, too. I mean, they wouldn't take no for an answer. In a good way, they kept at it, but they wouldn't give up. Never give up.
0: I think you say in the book that Perseverance was his middle name.
1: Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes to the point that you wanted to kill him, you know, because he just wouldn't stop. Say, you know, Bill, for heaven's sakes, don't call this person again. It's okay. But he's back on the phone. Was there an area
0: in New York City that he did not have an opportunity to develop that he wanted to?
1: Not that I'm aware of, no. I mean, there was 8th Avenue, and there was 96th Street, and there was 14th Street, and then down to Hudson, and then across in Queens. I was going to say, we have He's to talk of...
0: about Queens, because he really helped to redevelop the waterfront in Long Island City. Well,
1: he did, along with Herbsters, his good pal. They did that together with Howard Stein, and um, mm. it was a great project, and sort of started something over there. But I have to, I think he would give Herbsters a lot of credit for that. Who used to be a head of city planning, and they became great friends. So that changed an area again. So wherever he went, sort of things got better.
0: Why was it important for him to write this book? Why did he decide to finally open up and talk about it?
1: That's a very good question, because when we first retired and went to Santa Fe, uh, he was not only um, in bad financial straits, but he was in very bad physical straits. He had had all these back operations. And a friend of ours came out determined to get Bill. He was going to write the book. Bill was going to talk to him. <clears throat> and as I said, Bill could never talk about himself to anybody. And he didn't want to talk about what he had just left. It was just too painful. And they tried twice, and it never went anywhere. And it was only later when his grandchildren started coming out to visit. I mean, they're at the age of, you know, in their 20s. But he thought, maybe, maybe I should leave something for them. And so that, I think, prompted him to sit down and write the book, which he wrote on the computer with two fingers. I mean, that's the way he wrote the book.
0: Was it challenging for him while he was sitting there typing out, do you think, to sort of put those words down?
1: It's amazing because, as I said, I mean, he didn't talk that much, but he was able to write it and remember so much of it and remember it so clearly. Which is quite amazing, really.
0: You referenced his sons. His sons yes. obviously continuing in their father's yes, very footsteps.
1: Successful. both William and Arthur, very successful. And one of the grandchildren is going to, is an architect. I'm very proud of her, and she's working at Skidmore, Owings, Merrill out in uh, San Francisco. And his son is, in, and the grandson is in financing, which I'm not quite sure what it is, but I'm sure it has something to do with real estate. So that it continues.
0: What would you want New York City to know most about your husband? Because as you said, his name is not emblazoned on building after building. We have the Zeckendorf Towers. But what would you want New Yorkers to know as they walk around about the mark your husband left here?
1: Well, That he made a difference. Whatever place he started to build something, he cared about it. He cared about the community. He cared about leaving a legacy. Um, Nobody's going to really know about it. But he made every place better than where he he found it, really.
0: Where did he grow up in New York City?
1: He grew up here, was born here, and raised in New York City, and, uh, you know, lived on the west side. Well, in Manhattan, and when he was growing up younger, he lived on the west side, and uh, so he was pretty much experienced with the city. But he's a New Yorker all the way through, unlike the rest of us who came here and adopted it.
0: Is there a particular chapter in the book that you like most?
1: You know, I read this book... So many times, it's just part of me. Uh, when when he was, Every time he wrote a chapter, I read it. And then sometimes he would rewrite the chapter, forgetting he had already written it. So I'd have to read it again. Uh, I just think the book is beautiful. And I love the fact that in the first chapter, he talks about growing up Zeckendorf, because it's the most he ever talked about himself. And you get a little peek at what it was like growing up. His parents divorced that was tough for him and his sister and his father, a big real estate developer, was sort of in the money and out of the money. He never knew whether there was money to go back to school. Then he went to Lawrenceville and um, he had a tough time. It was a lot of antisemitism. He was There were two Jewish boys in Lawrenceville then. And he was sort of heavy set and I'm sure they made fun of him. And finally, after a year, he decided to pull himself together. He joined the drama club, the yearbook, the newspaper, and ended up being affectionately called The Boss. I like that.
0: (laughs) I think it's not surprising to you that he earned that name, huh?
1: (laughs) No, it's not. But uh, it was tough growing up. I mean, we all have a tough time growing up. It's not easy for anybody, and particularly when your parents are divorced and all. But um, I like that chapter a lot because he opened up a little piece of his life.
0: What can you tell me about the cover of this book? Where is your husband you
1: know, here? Oh, you know, we, we're not sure. I think he's up our west side, a project that was done by his father. It was uh, whatever they call it. But, you know, I had never seen this photograph. And when the designer of the book... <laughs> I just broke into tears. <laughs> Why? Because he's so happy. He's got his foot on a shovel. And uh, it's before I really knew him. And I'm not sure. It looks a bit like Kip's Bay, but I think it was on the Upper West Side. We're, we're not sure. But I, I think it's the best picture of him I've ever seen. The smile. With a smile. And he looks secure there. He looks happy. He looks, you know, and I... For all he went through, I'm happy to see him with that foot on the shovel thinking, finally gonna get something in the ground. Even though this was his father's project, not his. It took he didn't get to do anything till the eighties. And he was in his fifties when he, he
0: finally actually broke ground yeah. on his first ground up project. It was
1: something like in ten years he did all that. <laughs> Just astonishing, isn't it?
0: No question about that. I mean, one would be surprised that there he was starting ground up, and you would think he was in his 20s, but no, he was in his 50s.
1: Yeah, so it was a long wait to get there. But in the meantime, you know, I don't know if you know this in the book, but he was influential in bringing the Queen Mary to uh, Long Beach. His friend Al Bloomingdale wanted to get the Queen Mary there to open as a hotel for Diners Club. And then a friend of Al Bloomingdale's found out that the London Bridge was for sale, so he goes back to London and gets the London Bridge for this guy, and he puts it in Havas- Lake Havasu City in Arizona. It's the second largest tourist attraction in Arizona. Then he did two- He did a nightclub here with his friend Jeffrey Leeds called Lantardy at the Gotham within the Gotham. Then he did a, sh- a supper club called Shepherds. Then he brought Christie's over, which is the first time they had been in this country, and Regine. And then he started Liserc. So this was all before he really got to build anything himself. So he was he was doing he was being creative in any case and loved doing that. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. Nancy, thank you. Bye bye.
0: That was Nancy Zeckendorf. Her husband, William Zeckendorf Jr., died in 2014. His book, Developing My Life with Joan Duncan Oliver, is published by Andrea Montfried Editions. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producers Zach Salas and Claire Drake. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listeners supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.